There was a song I used to hear on the radio during high school. At the end of the verses, it had the line, this is just a little bit of history repeating. That's what life, what the world can feel like, can't it? On a global scale, empires come and go, wars begin and end, on and on and over and over. In the world, history feels like it keeps repeating. And maybe this is what you feel is the story of your life. Things you thought were in the past have a habit of coming back. Health or financial problems, uh, difficult relationships. If you're a Christian, uh, the war to put sin to death, it keeps coming back. It keeps repeating. Is there ever going to be an end? Zechariah's final chapter, uh, the final part of his message from God, uh, Zechariah 14, is a message about the end of history. We started hearing about it last week. Chapters 12, 13 and 14 are all about that day. That day which is the end of history. And last week we saw that day is all about Jesus. Zechariah 12 and 13 was fulfilled in the striking and piercing of Jesus And it will come to ultimate completion when Jesus returns and all of humanity looks at the one who was pierced. As we saw last week, uh, the first and second comings of Jesus are intertwined. They're threaded together. They're part of one whole moment. The cross, resurrection and ascension and return of Jesus are part of the one move of God. And we're going to see that again today as we dig into Zechariah 14. Uh, We'll be thinking about... As you read this chapter, you're going, well, is that about the death and resurrection of Jesus or is it about his return? And the answer is going to be yes, because you can't separate the two. Now, this final prophecy of Zechariah, how should we approach it? On one level, it's not a story, it's a list. It's 16 things you must know about that day. What I mean is, why I'm pointing this out is, if you try and read Zechariah 12 to 14 like a a news report, first this will happen, then this, and finally that, if you approach it in that way, it is all muddle. It just is gobbledygook. It makes no sense whatsoever. It's a list. It's like instant replay. 16 different camera angles on the one thing. Though, at the same time, there is a kind of shape to Zechariah 14. It's not a random list. There's a shape. It begins with war, ends with worship. It begins with hostility, ends with holiness. And our plan today is to move through the the seven scenes, the seven items on the list, seven pictures about what that day is about. And then we're going to go to the New Testament to see what it means for us. So Zechariah 14 starts the same way as chapter 12, a horrific picture of war. The whole world, every nation, marching against one little city, marching against Jerusalem and obliterating it, almost obliterating it. So verse 1, Zechariah 14.1. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. For Zechariah's first here is 
this scene is all too real. The Babylonian siege of Jerusalem is still a vivid memory. And possibly at the time of Zechariah, threats are on the horizon again. It's a hopeless picture. Half the people exiled, taken as prisoners, and the rest remain in the shell of a city. The most vulnerable people have been treated horribly. But then God shows up. Verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. Next picture. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then my, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. God himself shows up. It sounds like he physically shows up. In chapter 12, God was physically pierced. In chapter 14, God has physical feet on a mountain. Uh, the Mount of Olives is a hill east of Jerusalem. I've got a, a photo up there to help us get the scene. Uh, that's Jerusalem, Mount Zion. On, that's on that side, on the, the top left of the photo. Uh, you might be able to see the, the Dome of the Rock there. That's the, uh, it's a mosque that stands roughly where the temple used to. Behind and to the right is the Mount of Olives. Uh, as you can see, it doesn't have a single peak. It's actually a ridge running about two kilometres. It's higher than Jerusalem. It, it blocks the way down to Jericho. And in the middle, between the two hills, is the Kidron Valley. Uh, The picture in verse 4 is gobsmacking. God himself, feet planted on the Mount of Olives, and then it splits in half, just like the Red Sea, as God's people were fleeing from Pharaoh's army. But this is much bigger. I'm no engineer, but I reckon moving water is easier than moving a mountain. That's what happens here. The mountain splits in two, and it creates a valley, a way of escape for those who are in Jerusalem. So that's the first two pictures of that day. There's an incredible threat, an unbeatable enemy, but God literally steps in, he fights for his people and provides a way of rescue. The next picture isn't so much something that occurs on that day, but it's about what the world will be like on that day. And it's nothing short of new creation. The world, the universe is made new. First up, it's a day with no end because it's a day of eternal light. Verse 6, on that day there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. Words struggle to explain what's going on. There's both no sunlight but also forever light. New creation means no day or night. It also means no more seasons because living water will provide life forever. Verse 8, on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. Normally, rivers go up and down. Every time I drive over the Normandy Bridge, you look, don't you? Is it up? Is it down? 
In our part of the world, at the moment, it's going down and down and down. It gets even downer and downer when it's a time of drought. It doesn't quite run dry, but if you go, you go over a creek, it runs dry. But then the rains come and they burst the banks in flood. But on that day, those cycles will come to an end because living water will continually flow from Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because in Zechariah's day, that's where the temple is. It's where God's presence is. This is living water flowing from God's presence out to the whole earth. It's meant to make us think of Eden. Genesis 2, water flowed out of Eden, watered the garden, and then flowed out to the whole world. On that day, it's like we're back in the garden. The garden where humanity lived rightly under God's loving rule. Verse 9, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. And because the God of Israel is on that day finally recognised as the one true God of the whole earth, and his name alone is worshipped and glorified, In this new creation on that day, Jerusalem will become the highest city, the highest mountain. Verse 10, the whole land from Reba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah, flat. But Jerusalem will be raised up high from the Benjamin Gate to the side of the first gate, to the corner gate, and from the Tower of Hananel to the Royal Winepress, and will remain in its place. It will be inhabited. Not like at the beginning where it was a shell of a city. It will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. So Jerusalem will rise to a a place of prominence, standing high above all because it's the city of God. And unlike through all of repeating history, on that day it will be safe and secure, never threatened again. And why? Why will Jerusalem be secure? Because God will judge, will punish, will destroy everyone who has ever attacked his people. All of their enemies gone. Verse 12, this is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their stockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, people will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will seize each other by the hand and attack one another. Judah too will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected. Great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and mules, the camels and donkeys, and all the animals in those camp. That day means peace rescue and security for God's people. It means abundance and blessing for God's people, but for God's enemies, death and destruction, both directly from God's hand through plague and disease, but also through their own hands as they lash out in panic. Now, when you remember how this chapter started and you remember how horrifically the enemy nations are pictured treating God's people, What we read above sounds just and fair. I mean, it's graphic, but remember how they treated innocent victims. Imagine you're a Ukrainian. Wouldn't you love to hear verse 12 happening to Russian soldiers? It's the same in every war, except except for the war that God fights. 
Because whilst he will bring justice and judgment, God also pours out abundant mercy. Verse 16, then the survivors, the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem, what's God going to do? He's going to slaughter them. No, will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty. And to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. So who is it that that is worshipping the king, the Lord Almighty? It's those who were attacking Jerusalem. It's So far, if you've been reading Zechariah 14, you think, well, the Judeans are the goodies and everyone else, well, they're the baddies. But God's heart is much bigger than that. In mercy, those who were once enemies, God welcomes as friends. What's the festival of tabernacles? It's one of the ancient Jewish celebrations. It goes back to the time of Moses. After being saved from Egypt through the Red Sea, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God brought his people to his place, settled them in, in his promised land. The Feast of Tabernacles or of Booths was an annual celebration. It was a reminder of 40 years they'd spent living in tents, in tabernacles, And now they can say, God's brought us home. We're not living in tents anymore. We get to live in houses. How good is that? And God has saved us. He's rescued us. He's he's got us away from slavery and brought us into freedom. God has given us his land and his presence. It's also a harvest festival. God has provided abundantly food for us to eat. And so who is it that gets to, to worship the Feast of Tabernacles, the Festival of Tabernacles? Well, People who used to be enemies. God isn't going to punish them by, right, you can go keep wandering forever, eternal wandering. No, it's eternity in the presence of God. They get to celebrate those two things that the Feast of Tabernacles means. Eternity in God's presence. And they themselves, the, those who were once enemies, are now the harvest brought in. That is great news. But there's a warning if you don't worship God, you don't. if you don't participate in his mercy, there'll be judgment for you. Verse 17. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord Almighty, and they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. Uh, The punishment is, is fitting. If you refuse to celebrate God's harvest and God's provision, you will face drought and famine. Friends, we need to remember this. We need to hear this. God's salvation, God's welcome is amazingly generous. And God's judgment, his justice, his punishment for refusing him is severe. This is a serious warning. But God's message finishes on an astoundingly, a beautifully high note. Uh, The final word, the conclusion of, of Zechariah, we've been in here for quite a few weeks, haven't we, as a church. This is the last thing that God says to us through Zechariah, which is that on that day, everywhere, And everyone will be holy. Verse 20. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. 
And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. Under the law of Moses, you had to go to a special place. You had to go through special rituals in order to enter God's presence. This is because by nature we are unclean, but God is holy. Under the law of, the Mo- under the law of Moses, the temple was holy. The things in the temple were holy. The priests were holy, but outside the temple, it was another story. And so this final picture is astounding. Holiness has burst out of the temple. Now everything in the city, everything in the land is holy. And the mention of the the Canaanite, I don't think this is about ethnicity because we just heard God's welcome to all those who were once his enemies. They're welcome to worship at the festival of tabernacles. So in in the context of Zechariah, Even people who were once enemies, they would now be part of the holiness that pervades the whole land. So I don't think the Canaanite who's not welcome, it's not about his ethnicity or her ethnicity. Canaan was the previous name of the land of Israel. And in Zechariah's day, Canaanite has two overtones, two meanings. One, to be called a Canaanite is to be an idol worshipper. And two, and if you've got an NIV, this is the footnote, Canaanite meant trader or merchant. It's an accusation. You Canaanite, it's saying either you're an idol worshipper or you're greedy. And so this final verse says, on that day, when God's kingdom comes, when God himself conquers all his enemies, when those who were once at war are now worshippers, on that day there'll be no idol worshippers, no greed. There'll be no sin in God's people. Completely holy, completely clean. Now imagine how Zechariah's prophecy would have been heard, both immediately in Zechariah's day, but also in the years and centuries that wore on. As empires rose and fell, every time Jerusalem and Judah were surrounded by armies, as, say, the Greeks or the Romans encroached, God's faithful people would have been wondering, all right, is this it? Is this that day? Will God show up, destroy our enemies, rescue us and make all things new? And Zechariah's prophecy would have given hope, but maybe also disappointment, because history kept repeating. When is when's it going to happen? When is God going to come? When will he step in and bring history to its glorious end? Well, one day in Jerusalem, at a time when the armies of Rome had overtaken it and there were idol worshippers and greedy tax collectors in their midst, one day, during the Feast of Tabernacles, a Galilean teacher stood up in Jerusalem and said, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus picks up the picture of Zechariah 14. He talks about living water, but it doesn't flow out of Jerusalem, the city, but it comes from him. And John goes on to explain this water isn't H2O, it's the Holy Spirit. By this he meant the Spirit. And later, possibly during the same Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood up and told the people, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Once again, picking up the language of Zechariah 14, the light that will never go out is Jesus. And he offers that light to anyone who follows him. Do you get what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying that day which Zechariah spoke about, that day when God shows up, and his king will rule the world, that day is here because Jesus is here. But it gets better. Now, you really need to listen to this one. It's slightly tricky. Over our time in Zechariah, we've been seeing all sorts of things coming together in Jesus. Remember the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a young donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9. He he rode that donkey from the top of the Mount of Olives down the Kidron Valley and up into Jerusalem, where he went into the temple. Uh, Two days later, Jesus and his disciples were again walking over the Mount of Olives. No donkey this time, at least not recorded in the Bible. And Jesus starts talking about mountains being moved. And not just any mountain, but this mountain, the Mount of Olives. Have a listen, this is Mark 11. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, there is a chance, as Jesus is talking about moving mountains, it's just a turn of phrase. But when he's standing on the Mount of Olives, and he talks about this mountain being thrown into the sea, I reckon he's saying something more. The mountain matters, and the man matters. For those with eyes to see, for those attuned to Zechariah, which they should have been after that donkey ride, what's happening is God's feet are literally standing on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is saying that day which Zechariah spoke of is about to happen. That day is upon them. And if that day is about to happen, what should you do? Prepare to meet your God. Make sure you are not his enemy. You need to pray. You need to pray for God's forgiveness. Jesus talks about the Mount of Olives moving. And a few days later, the most horrific moment of all history happens. Just outside Jerusalem, the world, the the leaders of Israel and the, the leaders of Rome, the whole world come together to lay siege, to attack God himself. What's the Bible saying? In the cross of Christ... That day has come. In the resurrection of Christ, that day has come. In the ascension of Christ, that day has come because now Jesus is risen and reigning as king of the whole earth. But the question we'll be asking is, well, if that day has come, if Jesus is king, if his enemies are defeated, why does history keep repeating? Why hasn't every person on earth either been destroyed or submitted to Jesus It often doesn't feel like we're living in that day. Well, as the New Testament tells us how to interpret Zechariah's prophecy, we see that day isn't a single 24-hour period. It's not a moment. No, we are still in that day. It's not over yet. 
we will be living in that day until Jesus returns. What happened at the cross will reach its completion when Jesus returns. Jesus will turn and make all things new. And we know this because in the book of Revelation, it uses the same picture language as Zechariah to show us what will be like when Jesus returns. Uh, Revelation 22 describes the world when Jesus makes all things new. The river of life flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, that's Jesus, spreading life to the whole world, the world which is given eternal light by the presence of God. So listen to Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp, or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope. When Jesus returns, history will stop repeating. And God's kingdom, which has broken into our world through Jesus and which we now experience in the spirit, God's kingdom will be all in all. This is our hope. And we know it's our hope. We know God will do this because of what he's done already in Jesus on the cross. But it's also a warning. Why is God allowing that day to continue? Because now is the time of salvation. Friends, God has made a way for us, for you to escape his judgment. And he invites those who are once enemies to come and worship him. Not worship by going to a special building up a hill or going through special rituals. Because holiness is no longer limited to a temple, but it comes from a person. It is ours through faith in Jesus. So this is the invitation. Jesus will return to judge and to save. Will you turn and trust in him? Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for Jesus, that in his death and resurrection, the day of salvation and judgment has come. We praise you that he is the source of living water, that he is the light of the world. We praise you for the promise of his return to make all things new, when living water will flow from your throne and your presence will be our light. Help us hold fast to this hope. May it give us courage when things, especially bad things, seem to keep happening. And we pray for those who are currently your enemies. Have mercy on them. May they join those, join us, who come to worship you, Father, Son and Spirit. Amen.